Hello and welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. I'm Carlos Glazo, recording today on May 18th, a Thursday, here with Ben Badler, as always. What's going on, Ben? Uh, just running around different games, calling a whole bunch of scouts, updating our draft rankings, writing 250-something reports on international prospects, and then we're updating our 30s, updating our top 100. So this is... Uh, so you got a lot of time on your hands, so we got some... Yeah. You got some extra time to talk talk baseball, slept, get on the pod. Slept a few hours last night. It was good. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, we got a lot of stuff to talk today, as usual. Excited to get into it. But before we do, I just want to um, do a little bit of housekeeping at the beginning, um, just so you guys know where to send us questions. We have a, a few listener questions that we're going to hit at the end of this podcast. Um, but in case you have anything you ever want to ask us, be sure to use our email. It's futureprojection at baseballamerica.com. Uh, we get all the emails that are sent to that address, and it's just a, a very nice way to collect any queries you guys have from us, any topics you want us to discuss, any specific player questions, any any process or scouty kind of questions. I know me and Ben both love talking about those. Um, and also, if you haven't rated and reviewed the podcast and you, you feel so inclined, um, that's also very helpful for just getting this podcast in front of more people who, who maybe haven't listened to it yet, but but are also uh, prospect nicks like you guys might be and like we definitely are. Um, but I think that is that is kind of the big housekeeping. I just wanted to hammer that email in front of you guys uh, so you know it's there. Um, and basically, if you ever have any questions and you want us to, to talk through something that, that you're thinking about on the podcast, that is the best way to do it. So future projection at baseballamerica.com. Um, but let's get into the podcast, Ben. There's a lot of different areas we could go. You mentioned a, a few different topics uh, in terms of just the lists and rankings and the work that we're doing at this point in the calendar. We are heading into the final week of college baseball's regular season. Um, we're kind of heating up on the professional side uh, of things. So where are we going to talk about today? I want to talk about who who the number one prospect in baseball is oh, right now. So you want to talk about Jackson Holiday? Is that what you're getting at? I think for me, he is he should be the number one prospect in baseball right now. We're not in a year or at least at a time right now where we have an an Adley Rushman or a Julio Rodriguez or uh, you know a Vlad Jr. and Acuña who Ha, you know, have proven themselves in the upper levels of the minors and have, you know, I don't want to say like no question marks. Obviously, Vlad Jr. was the defense and all that, but the, you know, potential 80 80 <laughs> offensive player, I think, is pretty loud, and especially given what he did in the upper levels at a young age. So I don't mm-hmm. think we have one player who's like that right now, especially with Gunnar Henderson and, and Corbin Carroll having graduated. So I think there's, you know, a handful of players with a good case to be number one right now. Mm-hmm. But to me, I would put Jackson Holiday number one, which is very aggressive for a 19 year old who at this time a year ago was playing high school baseball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he, everything just keeps going up and up and up with him over the last couple of years and it's hard to poke too many holes in his game. Like he, the, the, <laughs> well, the I was going to push him that. so fast, but like, he seems like he's too advanced 
for for high a as a as a 19 year old yeah his his minor league production in just 51 total games is just silly so going back to 2022 as an 18 year old in his debut he spent eight games in the florida complex league he hit 409 576 591 was quickly moved up to low a in the Carolina League, where he hit 238, 439, 333. His overall line in 2022, over 20 games, still a small sample, 297, 49, 422, with 25 walks, 12 strikeouts. Pretty pretty exceptional plate discipline for an 18-year-old debuting in pro ball. 2023 is even louder. He started the year in the Carolina League again. He was only there for 13 games because he hit 392, 523, 667, with two home runs, six doubles, 14 walks, 12 strikeouts. He is currently uh, at High A Aberdeen in the South Atlantic League, where he's hitting, again, still almost 400, 391, 500, 719, with three home runs, four triples, four doubles, and he's still walking as much as he's striking out. It's it's kind of silly what he's done offensively. Like you said, it's just been up and up and up. I thought you were going to have like more of a hot take here. I don't really think that Jackson Holiday. I'm curious what you think the perception of Jackson Holiday as a potential number one prospect in baseball is, because I don't. I don't think that's crazy at all. I mean, the other candidates we can talk through them and maybe why you would take Jackson Holiday. But Jackson Chorio is the same age. Granted, he's a he's a level ahead. He's in Double A. I think there are a few more questions about his approach that I would have. Uh, and Jackson Holiday also has the advantage of being a left-handed hitting shortstop, which I think is a, a pretty solid advantage when we're talking about young players who are rapidly moving through the minors and are really, really toolsy and have a lot of upside, but maybe both have just the risk of, you would think that they just, you would want to have more uh, minor league playing data under, like at your hands, but I really don't think it's that crazy. Who, who else do you think is even in this conversation? And I guess, how do you view the, Jackson versus Jackson debate at one one. If he's like the other guy that you would you would consider here, because I, I think I tend to agree with you. I don't think the current top one hundred that we're looking at is even close to what we've had in past few years. Just because we've had a lot of really good players graduate, and and I just don't think that this next wave is as elite as some of the, especially at the top, as some of the players we've had in the past. Right, or they're at least not at the point in their development cycle where, where you can be would, that confident right they don't you know the guys who we really like the a lot uh, are, are tend to be below double a or you know in churio's case just gotten to double a and is still mm-hmm. a, a teenager there so it would be pretty historically unusual to have uh you know a first year player who's barely you know you know 50 games into his career still in a ball be yeah. the number one prospect in baseball but in his case i i think it's merited it's it's such a beautiful swing it's a quick short turn to the ball the barrels in the hitting zone early he stays through the ball really well uses the whole field makes a ton of contact um, you know there is power in there five home runs through 31 games this year and he you know, still looks like a, a baby. I, I think there's more power coming. You can see the bat speed and, and just his ability to consistently barrel the ball and, and elevate the ball is going to yeah. enable him to 
maximize the power that he does have and then you pointed out the approach and the swing decisions i think he he definitely has the edge there over jackson churio i don't think jackson churio is some free swinger but it is definitely an area of his game where he has to tighten that up yeah some i mean churio has churio has more power i would say right now than... and even with that like jackson is hitting the ball just as hard yeah you know it's yeah again like he's not some slap hitter uh but mm-hmm. seeing you know seeing the places where churio is hitting baseballs to um you know center field off the batter's eye or mm-hmm. opposite field home runs the way he's able to drive the ball to right center from such a a wiry frame still and and he is he's also been pushed even more aggressively than holiday so i think if he like, you know, yeah, most 19 year olds are in low A. If you put Jackson Churio in low A, like his walk and strikeout numbers would look better. But I would still say Holiday has a more advanced eye and grasp of the strike zone than mm-hmm. Churio does. Yeah, and we, we'd gotten some feedback just looking over scout notes that some people had pointed out some questions about like Churio needing to learn how to use the, the outer third of the plate a little bit more efficiently. I think if you look at their batted ball profiles, like both of them are using the entire field um, pretty solidly, but everyone really raves about Jackson's ability to use the opposite field. I think that's or impressive. Jackson, come on, uh, or, or uh, yeah, Holiday. Sorry, <laughs> um, but I just don't see the hole in Holiday's game at all in any capacity. I'm curious, outside of the fact that like he just hasn't played in the upper levels of the minors yet, I don't know what the question mark is because. We heard really good things about his defensive work pre-draft. I've continued to hear good things about his defensive ability, just both in terms of athleticism and tools with the arm strength and the foot speed. He's running plus times. He's getting great reviews about his instincts um, just in the field offensively. He just seems like an exceptionally well-rounded player who is hitting, has great hitting traits, has great bat speed, has power now, has more projection physically to grow into more strength and add more power in the future. I mean, the fact that he's walking at the rate that he's walking at throughout his minor league career and striking out at the rate and just producing, I just have very, I don't know what the question mark is or what the hole in his game that he needs to improve on. He just basically needs to keep doing what he's doing. And he's got a very solid case as the number one prospect in baseball. There's, there's not another player who is a lock to play shortstop that is this well-rounded and this, and the tools are this exciting in my mind. I mean, I don't know who else it would be. Uh, I mean, I, I think there are players who maybe have louder raw tools than Holiday. Yeah, but well, certainly like has... Ellie De La Cruz, you have louder tools. You also have massive question marks there with with swing and miss and approach. Yeah, like you said with Holiday, I think it's just just like a matter of time <laughs> doesn't seem like there's a whole lot that could go wrong with him right like i don't know i i, I just see like you said so many strengths and not a lot of weaknesses i mean yeah churio churio is a better runner than holiday but holiday is a plus runner <laughs> and uh, and and they both play premium positions but defensively i would take jackson holiday being able to play shortstop over 
over Churio in yeah. center field. I think that has what What do you think in the, value, in the value of shortstop versus center field? Because we talk about them both as premium positions, but I, I think there's quite a bit of a gap between like an equivalent offensive profile who can play short versus one who plays center. Um, I mean, I think they're both premium positions. Yeah, I would give an edge to the player who can play shortstop. Um, and then, you know, Holiday certainly has a better arm than Churio does too, which, you know, is not a huge factor, but another edge just tools-wise that he has over over Churio. But, yeah, I, I think it's that's an edge. And then, I mean, really just the the ability to get on base. I think the Chur- Churio has a ton of power. And I think he could be like the Brewers version of Ronald Acuna Jr. potentially. Uh, but I think Holiday's potential for getting on base, his on base upside is going to be higher than than Churio's. Yeah. No, I think it's an interesting conversation. Is there anyone outside of the, the two Jacksons we're talking about who you would entertain as as top prospect in baseball? Um, if we're even going to talk about some guys who maybe would be graduated by the time we get to like a midseason update. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Ellie De La Cruz. You could at least make a case for him. I, I, I wouldn't have him that high. But yeah, I think me and you are both a little bit lower than than the rest of the staff on Ellie in general. It's just not yeah, the profiles that we feel very comfortable with. At the same time, I mean, it's eighty raw power, eighty runner. 80 arm like he has absolutely <laughs> bonkers tools athleticism size he's just absolute like mutant physicality and tools it's just a matter of approach with with him which has been better in certainly a smaller sample this year if just in terms of looking at the walks but again the strikeouts are still up um you know, we're, we're, and we're having the conversation of who should be the number one prospect in baseball, not whether Ellie De La Cruz merits being a top ten or, or top, you know, fifteen. If you want Absolutely. to extend it out even more, uh, prospect in the game. So certainly, as far as the tools and just raw upside, you can make a case for him. Um, you know, I think James Wood is another player mm-hmm. uh, where you can make a case. For him, where I was you had... glad that you mentioned him because I think he, him, him and Jackson Holiday were my two guys that I was probably most excited about about them them potentially being number one at the start of the 2024 season, like as we entered 2023. So I'm glad. Yeah, I mean, you look at the just the power, the other tools that James Wood has to go with the performance. He's hitting in Wilmington, which is just death for hitters, mm-hmm. except for James Wood, who's <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know still blasting the ball out of that park too so i think you can make a case for him obviously jordan walker is still prospect eligible so you have a little bit more upper level track record there um you know yuri perez has got the call up but he's still prospect eligible I, I think he has a case even as a pitcher just given his his upside as a potential number one starter, his proximity right now, and then again, the lack of like a surefire otherwise number one prospect in baseball right now. So I, I think those guys have cases. Um, I think Marcelo Meyer is somebody who potentially could get to 
that level based on the way he you know proceeds the rest of the season um but i i you know i wouldn't put him there quite yet so there's there's a whole bunch of guys who are at least in the conversation for it mm-hmm. but for me if if we were redoing the top 100 today and we are going to redo it at the beginning of june for our update my vote would be for for holiday yeah i mean i think i would be right there with you i i think the two we talk about how good of a pure hitter and how good of the approach is with holiday i think the power could easily become underrated with him because he does everything else so well and he doesn't look like the the sort of slugger that that ellie de la cruz or james wood are but the data that I'm looking at, he's hitting the ball on average harder than James Wood, harder than Jackson Trujillo, harder than Ellie De La Cruz. He's a couple of years younger than Ellie De La Cruz and James Wood, and he's not nearly as physical as those two yet. And again, I still think he's going to be significantly bigger and stronger in a couple of years. I'm curious what his power upside is going to be, or if he's just that sort of player who just constantly finds the barrel, and so he's going to have a high high average exit velocity in his... I mean, even the top end is comparable to these guys, which seems crazy for a 19-year-old who's just starting his pro career. I, I really think he's got massive, massive upside. Yeah, the contact quality is going to be consistently high mm-hmm. because of how accurate his barrel is. But then even to what you were saying before, it's he's certainly not done physically. Like There's mm-hmm. a lot more upside there for him to continue to get stronger so i yeah i do expect there to be another jump in in his power both the raw power and then the game power too once he kind of grows into his his prime physical man strength years Mm -hmm. yeah i mean he's gonna add steals as well he's already 10 for 13 so far this spring um again think plus runner we'll be curious to see like how that run tool progresses as he does get more physical i could see him maybe backing up to above average but we've also seen it the case where players add strength and the power or the speed excuse me either maintains or or even gets better um so i I just think he's super well-rounded did you expect me to be on board with you on this because i feel like you thought this was maybe i I really don't think this is too much of a hot take um i don't know i just don't think there's like an obvious number one candidate this year and to see a player go from playing high school baseball a year ago to being the number one prospect and we haven't moved him there yet but again like i'm saying he he would be number one for me Mm -hmm. right now to see him a player go that quickly to being potentially the number one prospect in baseball is pretty unusual look at the orioles last five first round picks so this is pick 11, 1, 2, 5, 1. So it's not like they've been picking at the the back of the draft class by any means, but it's Grayson Rodriguez in 2018 with the 11th overall pick. Adley Rushman, 1-1, one, one, pretty obvious 1-1 one, one that year. Uh, Heston Kerstad, who we talked about in a recent episode, was pretty much seemed like a better pick than a lot of the top 15 in the 2020 class at pick number two. And, and Kerstad was a bit of a curveball pick for the Orioles at the time, looking pretty solid for them now. Uh, 2021, Colton Kowser at number five. And then 2022, Jackson Holiday in a class where there were a few potential options um, at the top. That's yeah, pretty good for them. I mean, all of those seem like hits to me. 
Yeah, and that's obviously not even getting into Gunnar Henderson or, or some of yeah. the other guys. They took yeah, in just the, their first rounds. The next round, so uh, tanking works. I mean, you <laughs> still have to obviously pick the right guys, but if you have the ability to draft Adley Rushman when nobody else can, or you have the ability to draft Jackson Holiday when nobody else can, mm-hmm. that's going to going to be a big boost for your organization. Absolutely, and I think even still giving them credit for hitting on the guys because it's not like Jackson Holiday at the time was this consensus one-one player. I mean, he, yeah. he he joined a group of like three or four that were in the top, but we had Drew Jones as the pretty much consensus one-one talent in the class the whole time. Um, and I know there are, there are other teams that probably would have taken Drew one-one if they were picking there. So I mean, you still have to give them credit for. IDing the guy, and they've obviously done a really good job with with their hitting development for a number of players. So um, it's got to be pretty exciting to be an Orioles fan right now, and they probably deserve it after uh, I don't know how many years it was, but a, a few years of, of being pretty poor. Yeah, no, I think they've done a great job of identifying the the right players to draft, not just in the first round, but again, like going back to Gunnar Henderson or, or some of the other players they've taken after the first round. They've done a good job of, of scouting and and developing players too but you Absolutely. know when people say oh like this i'm sick of you know my team tanking for years or other teams fans too will complain about <laughs> other teams tanking and racking up all these high picks and not putting out a competitive team at the major league level for a few years but I don't know. Like you said, if, if you're an Orioles fan right now, you have to be feeling really excited about the next, uh, you know, five to ten years mm-hmm. of what what should be coming ahead for for the Orioles. Like, Absolutely. It, yeah, I mean, it obviously it sucks to watch a a losing team for you know for a few years, but it's it's a plan that is working right now. Yeah, and it's worked for a number of teams. Like you said, tanking works. It's effective. It's, it seems like it's a lot harder to consistently put out a competitive team year after year after year after year and consistently kind of find those reinforcements um, to put in your organization and consistently be good at developing players and really never go through uh, any down cycles. Um, I mean, that is obviously ideal. That's what you want to do if you're running a team. You want to constantly be be good and never have to really do the full teardown. But there are not too many teams who have done the full teardown and, and – it bears no fruit. I, I can't think of any examples that turned out terribly. Most of them that have done the full teardown, it seems like it generally worked. Are, are there any examples that you have that that maybe weren't as successful as you would hope? Well, the I mean, the Tigers have picked at the top of the draft for a lot of years now. This is true. And, and I don't think that one has gone uh, super well for them. They haven't had a winning record in... I think it's like seven or eight years. I'll pull up no, their B ref, but I also just pulled up their recent first round picks, and it, yeah, maybe maybe unsurprisingly, is not as uh, exciting as the Orioles. So they were first place team in 2014. This is the Tigers. They finished first in the uh, American League Central, and then in the next nine years they have one winning record 2016 they were 518 or 534 excuse me uh but yeah since 2017 they've been under 500 that includes 
three fifth place finishes, two third place finishes, a fourth and a second. They're currently second right now. That's not their finish, but wow, I didn't realize they were so close to five hundred this year. They're nineteen and twenty-two. Uh, you yeah. buying that one, Ben? I mean, they're they are nineteen and twenty-two. I guess that is they're close second to... in the division. You know, the rebuild has worked. <laughs> the turnaround is here. <laughs> the second place, yeah, second place team, but. Okay, here are their here is their first round history since twenty um eighteen, since they've been picking in the top fifteen picks. Twenty eighteen with the first pick, they took Casey Mize, who at the time was like the clear cut number one player in the class. Twenty nineteen at pick number five, they took Riley Green, who again Riley was in that top six group of players, I think pretty consensus pick there. Twenty twenty, they took Spencer Torkelson. That was their one one uh number one clear cut player to pick in twenty twenty. 2021, they picked Jackson Job at number three. I think this is maybe the one where kind of expected Marcelo Meyer because he was available there on the board, went number four to the Red Sox, and, and they were consistently tied with Job and Meyer. But my impression was they were going to take Meyer if he was on the board. That didn't happen. 2022, they took Jace Young, picking number 12. Um, and I think this also kind of highlights how you're, you're almost at the whims, too, of where you're picking and when you're picking. Like, it was much better to pick number one in 2019 than 2020. You'd much rather have had Adley Rushman in the one-one spot than Spencer Torkelson in the one-one spot. I mean, we never talked about Spencer Torkelson the same way that we talked about Adley, and it's just fortunate for the Orioles that they wound up picking one-one that year. Same way as the the Nationals when they got Harper and Strasburg back-to-back years. They just, I mean, you happen to be lucky that you had generational talents when you're picking that. So I think luck is involved. But I mean, how many of these picks do you think you would take back if you're the Tigers in hindsight? I don't think you can really take back too many. In well, hindsight, Jackson, I guess you. In hindsight, I guess you can. But at the time, they all made sense. Yeah, well, Jackson Job was one where mm-hmm. I think I would definitely have done that one differently. I mean, I don't think that surprises you that I would not take the high school <laughs> right-handed pitcher number no. three overall in yeah. the draft. As much as I liked Jackson Job, it's just a matter of opportunity cost and. For the sure, trade-off would have been, like you said, Marcelo Meyer. Yeah, even <laughs> the the specific order of those players was weird in 2021. I'm going to pull up that class now. And in 2021 also was a year where we just had no real... We had like a cluster of five or six players maybe that you could kind of put in this top tier. Henry Davis was kind of a surprising 1-1 pick. Jack Leiter went too. And, and even with, with Job going three that year... I thought that Jackson Job had the highest upside of any pitcher in that class. And I remember talking to a number of cross-checkers who thought the same thing. Like, his pure stuff was insane. There was a lot of, like, projection moving forward. I don't think Leiter uh, and Kamar Rocker had the same pure upside. But obviously, there's a ton of risk for the high school right-handed pitcher demographic. And when you're picking three, I mean, maybe maybe you just don't want to take on that much risk. I'm, I'm not opposed to taking it on, but... I mean, Marcelo Meyer at four, Colton Kowser at five, Jordan Lawler at six. Those all feel a little safer. And certainly in hindsight, you'd probably rather have those guys. But I don't know. I just don't, I don't think you can critique the Tigers' selections too much in the first round. Um, yeah. I mean, the, when they had the 1-1 one, one overall picks, like you said, Casey Mize, Spencer Torkelson, I think those were the consensus 1-1 one, one guys from – to say from start to finish but there wasn't mm-hmm. much of a finish with the 2020 season when they drafted Torkelson yeah. obviously but um yeah like you said sometimes the 
the timing works out where the consensus number one player when you have the number one pick is Bryce Harper. Yep. And sometimes it's Spencer Torkelson, who I don't know I'm not writing him off yet, but certainly has not, um, you know, elevated himself to the level of of Adley Rushman. But again, like you said, the Orioles also have identified the right players, even both at the top of the draft and then beyond too. Whether it's you know whether it's Grayson Rodriguez in you know a little bit more toward the middle of the first round or, or Gunnar Henderson or. Yep. Uh, you know, West Joey Ortiz in the fourth yeah. round in 2019. It's a good pick. Yeah, and and to do it all with you know very little to show for their international signings until they started changing things over, and now mm-hmm. they've got uh, you know Samuel Basayo, catcher in Loa, who's looking really really good right now. So, do you know what even looks better about the Orioles pick of Jackson Holiday last year? What makes what makes this pick look even better is if you go back to 2022 and you look at the first six picks, Jackson Holiday won one to the Orioles, Drew Jones won two to the D-backs, Kamar Rocker won three to the Rangers, Tamar Johnson won four to the Pirates, Elijah Green won five to the Nationals, and Jacob Berry won six to the Marlins. Um, we've talked about a few of these players, but you could make a reasonable case that the only player that's been successful or is succeeding or looking solid so far is Holiday. Um, we can get into a number of these players, but the first one is, is Kamar Rocker, I feel like we should talk about, because that was a shocking pick at the time, and the Rangers clearly went for a like high upside, high risk, high reward type of draft. And I think in some ways you, you kind of have to when you only have two picks in the first four rounds. Um but Kamar Rocker, obviously, since the last time we podcasted, the news came out that he's going to have Tommy John surgery. He was actually pitching pretty well prior to that. Um, but I'd say this is maybe the least surprising Tommy John surgery announcement we've seen when we pretty much expect a lot of pitchers to have to have that. Like, it's not a surprise, I'd say, when any pitcher has it. But the medical was the big question mark with Kamar, and now he's going to be sidelined for a while. Yeah, it's too bad. Cause like you said, he was striking out a ton of hitters in you know in high a as a 23 year old obviously understand why he's a little bit older for Mm -hmm. that level just given his career trajectory Mm -hmm. to this point but yeah i mean that's it's too bad he's gonna come back probably what late maybe next year pitch a partial season and then still still be on an innings limit i'm sure yeah in 2025 when he's 25 years old at that point yeah so you know he's not like done for by any means but again just all the trade-offs that there are with a top three overall pick and when he was drafted like you said that was very surprising to see him go third (laughs) overall and i I remember like gasping when i heard that that's who they were taking number three i was like wait what i was it was probably the most surprising pick i've seen in the top 10 since i've like been covering the draft and i think part of it is just because there was so much drama and so much so much that was happening with kamar's situation in general in addition to just the pick being a little bit surprising like there was just a lot of history there there was a lot of there's a lot of criticism for the mets for not signing him there were, there was a lot of 
weird back and forth between like agents and what was happening with the medical. There was a lot of commentary on Rocker. He was one of the more famous college players, really in the last few years. Like I think you can make a case he's one of the most famous college players we've had in like five, at least five years. Like him, Adley, Dylan Cruz. Those are all the guys I think of when I'm thinking of like famous college players recently. Yeah, I think he's way more famous than even Adley was. Yeah. I mean, he just was on this. I mean, he was a massive star in college baseball for good reason. And then all this stuff happened in 2021. Comes back, looks pretty good in the Frontier League. There's just there are a lot of uncertainties with the medical and what teams are going to do with that. And, and then he goes third overall when I think it was there were pretty good players on the board still. And you're just like, man, this is the Rangers really making a bold pick, going for this upside, like taking a, a pitcher who you'd think if he's healthy, like you push him quickly. And all of a sudden, the the timeline is just halted for him. Yeah, and they and they did it not just because they wanted to draft Rocker there; they wanted to be able to save money, right? So they could also sign uh, Brock Porter with a later round pick, who was a, a first round talent. talent. Yeah. So that's that's why they did it. So but... it was a yeah five point two million dollar bonus with a third pick for Rocker, and then they signed Brock Porter in the fourth round for three point seven million, which easily is the highest in the, in that round. Yeah, but I, I just like I said at the time, it didn't make a lot of sense to me to do that to take two pretty risky pitchers for that. I mean, basing all of you know there was a medical issue at the time with Rocker, you're Mm -hmm. watching him pitch five very brief indie ball outings in 2022. And then you're going to take him third overall when there's just so many other super talented players Mm -hmm. on the board. And I, I like Rocker, but just not, not third, not there overall. So, I mean, it's still obviously still super disappointing to see him, get hurt and hopefully can uh come back strong but it was a risky very risky pick at the time and um you know curious what Mets fans think <laughs> right that, now because there was there was it's, like, it's sad that Mets fans are going to be like happy about this because I mean it, it makes sense and it's never it's never good to be happy when a player gets injured obviously but even I said at the time when when teams make these decisions to select a player with that sort of draft capital and then don't sign them because of medical questions like the teams have a pretty good track record of making the right decision in those instances most of the notable players who didn't get deals because of those question marks you would have preferred taking the team's route brady aiken is one that the astros did um they made the right call on that one carter stewart the braves probably made the right call on that one mar rocker made the right call on that one there are others as well i just think the teams have so much more medical information than that we're aware of we don't we don't know the medicals they have team doctors pouring over this trying to make sure that like you feel comfortable comfortable with the pick and and, and in rocker's case with the mets not before you make the pick they, it's only after so it's not like exactly the went into it with some malice exactly like you you clearly liked the player you're taking him with their first overall pick you're planning to give him this huge bonus and then if if after all this like this is the guy you identified this is the guy you wanted in the first round it has to be a very concerning piece of information that comes up when you do get the medical information for you to be like okay no we'll rather just take a comp pick next year and try our luck with another class with another player 
Like, I, I until I'm like a doctor and have all this medical information at my disposal, I'm probably going to just trust what the teams are doing because they're the ones who are investing all this money. Um, and it, it, it's really MLB that kind of the MLB rule that screwed over Rocker, where if in that situation, if a player gets drafted, only can negotiate with one team. The player, the team doesn't have access to his medical information until after making the pick. And then the team decides, wait, there's something wrong with the medical here. We're not going to sign him. We have a fallback option of getting another pick next year. Mm -hmm. The player is completely screwed. He has no fallback option. He can't go sign with another team. I mean, he to me. You could argue be, that the player could give out the medical information before, though. Nothing would. Stop yeah, him. he could, but, but he shouldn't have to either if he doesn't want to. And then MLB, what they came in and changed the rule and claimed it was. Or I don't know if they claimed, but I think it was very quickly named collected. the Kamar Rocker rule, which doesn't yes, make any sense, but which would not have had any impact <laughs> on, on Kumar. Yes, he would not have given the medical information, so he doesn't get whatever the benefit was of a higher guaranteed bonus. It, you it worked out in a sense for Rocker, at least financially, yes. because of what the <clears throat> Rangers did. But I think he got very fortunate so he went from the reported six million dollar bonus that he would have gotten in 2021 to 5.2 yeah everything considered where he was like where his draft stock seemed to be in the 2022 class that 5.2 million is probably higher than most teams would have given him so yeah but it's a situation where i I would like to see it where hey if you draft a player you know even if you don't have the medical submission from him pre-draft and you decide you don't want to sign him for some reason due to a physical Mm -hmm. then that player should be able to negotiate with another team to sign right away for up to you know a certain amount of money say whatever the the slot value was for without that that money counting towards the other the new team's bonus pool would that be the yeah without accounting toward another team because i i know every team would be on board then (laughs) Yeah, well, I you know I think MLB would not want to say, oh, you're an unrestricted free yeah, agent because absolutely. then the player was probably going to sign for even more money potentially. Yes, <laughs> because he's not having his market artificially depressed yeah. through the draft process. But if you just said, look, there's there's a cap on what you can sign for. We just don't want this player to get, you know, yeah, basically screwed. You have hosed. to wait an entire year to just re-enter the process. Yeah, I agree with you. I think some sort of because you're right, the team gets taken care of. They get a comp pick. They honestly don't have to worry about it too much. You're picking one spot lower than you picked that year. Um, there's and, and there's, the medical stuff can be very subjective too. A player can be completely absolutely. asymptomatic. One doctor says, "Oh no, I'm not signing off on this." Which Brady Aikens was an asymptomatic case too, right? It was just like they were concerned about the size of the UCL. Yeah, and I've, you know I've seen cases internationally where the team says oh, like there's an issue with the elbow and the player's like, I've been at your academy. Like we've been doing workouts all this time. I've been throwing, uh, (laughs) I feel fine. Or, oh, there's an issue with your vision. It's like, well, is that, you know, grounds for failing a physical, but at least internationally, the player has the option to go out and negotiate with other teams. It's, it's still not ideal because the it obviously internationally teams are committing a lot of their 
bonus pool money super early in the process. So it's, it's not a perfect situation, but you can at least go out and still negotiate a contract right away with any other club in the draft. You just don't have that capacity as it's currently set up. So how about the other two players who were, who were taken in the top five picks, um, Drew Jones, Tamar Johnson, uh, Elijah Green was the other player in the top five picks. We, we talked about him recently, but I do want to touch on Drew Jones and Tamar Johnson, who were the number two and three high school hitters taken after Jackson Holiday. They have not had quite the loud start to their pro careers that Holiday has. Um, Drew is currently, I think he's on the IL uh, with a minor injury and is not playing, um, but he didn't hit very great while he was healthy. Tamar Johnson also not hitting great overall, just in terms of results um do you have any takeaways on on how these players are performing so far or any concerns with with what they've been doing so far well yeah and then jacob barry who went six overall who we touched on at the end of last week's episode two very surprisingly not hitting um yeah i think like i said i had concerns about him the overall impact down the road as a likely first baseman, but expected him to have no problem in a ball, which has not been the case at all. Yeah. I mean, especially with, with him, it's a college player that had a track record of hitting in multiple power conferences, had a track record of showing good zone control, had a track record of showing power. And so far in pro ball, it's not hitting for average. The strikeout to walk rate is terrible. He's not even really hitting the ball that hard. And when you are a very limited defensive profile and you're a college player, especially, that's extremely concerning. I would say more concerning for Barry than, than either Tamar or Drew because I think with both those players, like maybe with high schoolers, you, you give them a little bit more leeway, but you would think that Barry is further along in his development as a player and should be kind of hitting the ground running in the lower levels of the minors, and that's just not the case. And it's a bigger sample size with him, too, where yeah. Drew Drew had the shoulder injury last year, mm-hmm. so he's coming back from that, and then he gets hurt again. So it's it's been a really small sample size for him. Tamar was hurt at the beginning of the spring, too, so it's only been 16 games for him. Now, the strikeouts are definitely higher than I would have expected or anticipated for him that wasn't really an issue for him last year when he was in Bradenton at the end of the summer Um, so I I I do think in both cases we're we're talking about pretty small samples certainly compared to Elijah Green where it's a bigger sample a a much more alarming strikeout rate and then you have the history and track record of swing and miss concerns to go with it as well now obviously he has outstanding size athleticism other tools where if he can get the strikeout rate to a manageable level you you have a potentially very good player but it's certainly not there right now and even if it comes down some it's still pretty high um so I, I think it's small sample size territory still with both Termar and mm-hmm. Drew. Yeah, for both of them, let me just give you their their lines yeah. really quickly. So Drew Jones, um, as a 19-year-old in the California League, low A, uh, ten, just 10 games, 175, 283, 200, 14 strikeouts, 6 walks. 
Jamar Johnson as a 19-year-old in Bradenton, also low A, 16 games, 255, 369, 309, 25 strikeouts, nine walks for those uh, for those two. Yeah, so I, I and with Drew Jones, obviously you have tremendous defense in center field. We've seen that again this year in Pro yeah. Bowl, one of the best defensive center fielders in the minor leagues. But I do have more, I think I've just consistently had more concern about his pure hitting ability relative to mm-hmm. maybe the rest of the industry. So look, I, I think Drew was like, Drew was rated one of the best pure hitters in the class right um, from and the industry last year. I think he was second behind Tremar Johnson in our our polling of front office officials. I'll pull that up just to confirm that, but i'm I'm pretty sure he was second in that. Yeah, I mean, when, and Tamar was probably first, I would think. Yeah, Tamar was definitely first in that category. Yeah. With, with Tamar, I, I get it because, and he doesn't do as many dynamic things on the defensive side that Drew Jones can. But with Tamar, like, yeah, I see the swing, the bat speed, the approach, the ability to use the opposite field and, and square up a, you know different types of pitches in different parts of the strike zone. So I, I understood that, whereas with Drew Jones, I just had more question marks on the swing, uh, but it just seemed like so many other people <laughs> throughout the the scouting world who were seeing him a lot and, and you know, a lot more than than I was, obviously, during the spring were, were raving about him, but um, just a little bit more hesitant. So, like, where we have him... Mm-hmm in our top 100 right now i know we moved him down a little bit in our last update but even down is still down to 30 like I, I would have him i would have him significantly lower than that but maybe i end up just being too light on him mm-hmm. but again i still think it's just a small sample to to judge this year yeah to go back to the the best um the best pure hitter uh that I mentioned, our preseason list of best tools, which is just strictly uh, as voted on by scouting directors. There are only two players who even got votes on the high school side. Tamar Johnson collected the vast majority of those, but Drew Jones was second in that category. Um, so probably the gap between them is bigger than the the one and two placement um, there indicates. But, but even on our final list of best tools for the class, best pure hitter, we had Tamar Johnson, Drew Jones, Cole Young, Jackson Holiday and Malcolm Moore. That was our top five for best hitters on the high school end. I think um, I would take Jackson Holiday now. <laughs> yeah, I think I might take Jackson Holiday now too. That was so done like, preseason too, right? That no, that one was um, in July. So that would be our like final best tools oh, that okay. go in the draft preview edition. Yeah, Jackson would have been. I think I don't know that Jackson probably would have been in that conversation preseason postseason he joined the crew i mean you're high on cole young tamar still i've never seen a hitter in high school as advanced who performed as well as tamar so i'm really curious to see what happens with him i think there are a lot of for for someone like me who's positively biased towards tamar there are a lot of data points that that i think you can point out to still be still be hopeful i mean he's hitting the ball hard He's not missing at a crazy rate. He's not chasing out of the zone at a crazy rate. He's still walking um, at a decent clip. Um, what is the actual walk rate here? Yeah, he's walking at a 13% walk rate. Like, 
the strikeout numbers are, are a little bit surprising to me, just given how much he's missing overall and how much he's chasing out of the zone. It's 38% strikeout. Again, 65 plate appearances. Yeah, the ton, strikeout but... rate is high, but the miss rate is under 30%. The chase rate is really quite good at 16% overall. He's he's not swinging a lot overall. Maybe he's just being like too passive and not getting into good hitters counts. That just a random theory that I'm, I'm thinking through as I look over this data. But like he's hitting the ball hard. He's getting on base. He's making good swing decisions. I would still bank on him turning it around. It's also weird, too, because his line is so poor overall, but his BABIP is like close to 500. So he just has a very weird and unusual line going on right now. But I think with Termar, in the same way that Jacob Berry not hitting is concerning, like Termar does not have the sort of secondary tools or defensive value that Elijah Green and Drew Jones have. So like he was taken where he was taken in the draft because of a very high conviction and a very high opinion on his hitting ability and mm. on his power. So there's just less leeway for him to not hit and still retain that value. Um, I'm, I'm very hopeful that the numbers will start to look good. Just like the, the back of the baseball card numbers will look good because the underlying stuff is better than I would have expected just seeing the performance. And I'm still hopeful because I just think he is that, that sort of a special hitter. Uh, but I already have heard from some people in the industry who are just not not in on the overall profile. So, well, if you're yeah, like you, if you're not performing at a high level and you're a stocky five foot eight second baseman, mm-hmm. then yeah, I, I can see why if you go in and see him now, then you're like, oh, well, man, I don't I don't quite get it yet. So, like you said, it's really you're really banking on the bat the hitting ability and mm-hmm. and the really power the, the power that he does have especially for um not that tall of of a of a player but he's also mm-hmm. coming back from an injury like we've talked about brady house before and how encouraging it's been to see the start that he's off to this season and in his case it was a back injury so you know different than you know the lower half stuff with Termar but just want to take a little bit more time for him to kind of distance himself from that make sure he's fully healthy and to see a larger sample size before getting too um, you know concerned at this point absolutely and hey even the last seven games I'm just picking out samples to make tomorrow look good he's hitting 345 406 414 so you can uh, you can manipulate these numbers in a lot of ways with these tiny samples and, and make it look a bit different. I'm I'm yeah. still I'm still optimistic on Tremar. That's not a small sample if it confirms exactly the exactly exactly. We've talked about this before many times. Um, okay, so I guess how would you sum up feelings on Tremar and Drew at this point? I think we know feelings on Jacob Barry. Why are, why are we quicker to be out on Barry? You just said the sample size and, and the fact that you would expect him to have less of a, a learning curve than these guys. I mean, I'm with that opinion. Um, I think for me in part, it's just being at a lower starting point where I was on Jacob Berry. Yeah. Like I, he would not have been somebody I would have drafted with a top 10 pick. I was probably just lower than the industry on him. But yeah. again, to see the way he's hit, or just not hit, I guess, <laughs> in mm-hmm. the first month of the season through a little over 100 plate appearances now and, and you know, not walking and he's striking out. Like, I, 
I mean, he's hitting I, the I ball less hard than he's hitting the ball less all. hard than Drew and then Termar. The, the data that I'm looking at, which is mostly the first month of the season, so it's possible it's gotten better, but it's like an 84 mile per hour average exit velocity for a guy that needs to hit for power. It's a the chase rate is near 40 percent. The walk rate is not good. The strikeout rate is bad. Like there are just no there are no positive numbers I can find with Barry. If if you were like entered this as a Barry believer. Uh, you're really like grasping for something to to give you confidence and sticking with that opinion. Yeah, he, you know, we, we have uh, several draft picks from last year in our top 100. He's not in there. I don't really see a case why he would be yeah. a top 100 guy at this point. Yeah, this kind of gets into a question. We we, we asked for listener questions, and, and Jeff Ponce, who who actually is, is a Baseball America writer, he asked, how quickly do you readjust expectations for draft prospects based on professional samples? I think what we're talking about here kind of gets into that conversation. Um, but how would you address that question? Because I thought it was an interesting process question in, in terms of how we fold in pro data. I remember one of the ones that I was most probably adamant about that was maybe against the grain was CJ Abrams debut. Um, we had Bobby Wood Jr. ranked as the number two player in the 2019 class. CJ Abrams was ranked three or four, I believe um, right behind C, uh, Bobby Wood Jr. Solidly in the top tier of that class. And then both went into pro ball uh, played in rookie ball trying to find the numbers here yeah cj abrams absolutely tore up rookie ball in 32 games Mm -hmm. he hit 401 442 662 and i remember there's a lot of talk about flipping cj abrams and bobby jr and like we actually did have them flipped and i was really adamant against that because i i was just a firm believer in bobby witt jr at the time i thought that cj abrams had the exact skill set where he could kind of abuse rookie ball with his speed with his like contact ability uh, the BABIP that he probably was running at that point. And so I was like not moved by that 32 game sample uh, in the same way that, that maybe some other people were. And I was sticking to the pre-draft priors. I think now I've gotten, I've become more reactive, hopefully in a, in a beneficial way in, in, in reevaluating my priors with the draft prospects based on more pro information. But I like to use as much underlying info as I can, like, are you hitting the ball hard? Are you making good swing decisions? Um, are you making contact? So I think my process personally has evolved and I've I've figured out which information to use. Um, but how, how would you kind of just address this question overall? I think you can gain significant new information to adjust your reports and rankings of players after the draft especially for high school players where we're seeing them, you know, in our case, like we're building multiple years of, of history, particularly on the the top players when they're underclassmen, but we're seeing them, you know, we are sw- seeing them swing wood bats on the summer circuit, you know, the summer before, but at that point, by the time the draft comes, a lot of that information is about a year old. And then in the spring, you're seeing guys swinging, you know, mostly metal bats going up against high school competition, playing against some good high school teams in in some areas or in in certain conferences. But you're you're all they're also still seeing them facing a lot of 
high school players who are just normal high school kids who are not going to play baseball after high school or are not going to have any kind of professional career. Whereas once we see them in the complex leagues, swinging wood bats, consistently facing, you know, not polished arms necessarily, but guys who, you know, can bring the velocity at least. Yeah. You can get a lot of new information to update your reports and think about like Jackson holiday. Think about how much his stock changed from just over the course of, of a couple months, even within the high school season. Uh, you know, we're, we're moving guys within our draft rankings pretty significantly sometimes based on, uh, you know, just what they're doing within a couple months time frame. Yeah. Uh, and I don't see why you wouldn't adjust it once you have, particularly for high school players, professional information, they're swinging wood bats, playing against significantly better competition. You know, we, we also have a lot of the underlying data as well, but even going back to somebody like Mike Trout, where he was drafted at the back of the first rounds, but then he goes out and, you know, just tears it up in mm-hmm. the Arizona league as a 17 year old at the time. And it's like, all right, we didn't know he was going to be Mike Trout, the greatest player of our generation at that time. But it was yeah. clear like, oh, yeah, we need to move this guy out. This guy's better than where we thought he was before the draft. Or Bo Bichette is another player who will always jump out for me because I was doing our Gulf Coast League rankings at the time, and he was a second-round pick. And he had some like weird injury mm-hmm. that year with – I don't want to like get it wrong. It's like spleen or, or something like that. I, I forget mm-hmm. off the top of my head. I, I know I wrote it at the time, but um, so he didn't play a ton, but it was still about 20 something games hit over 400 with power in that league. And it was like, yo, like this guy is better than we thought or better than a lot of teams thought as a, a second round pick. This guy's a first round caliber talent. Mm-hmm. So we were pretty aggressive with him after that. So I think there, there's certainly to just say, oh, no, we just have our pre-draft reports. That's it. We're not changing our opinions or changing our reports or adjusting anything based on new information that I think is actionable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's a mistake to just lean entirely on the pre-draft reports. Absolutely. I, I think that's something that I've learned over the years. I think initially... I was more of a slave to the pre-draft rankings because you spend an entire year on these players and you kind of consistently are getting the feedback that, that led you to those rankings at the end of the process. And so once you've done that for a whole year, you kind of feel like, okay, like I, I've spent a whole year making these rankings. Like there's a reason we rank them this way. Like I'm not going to overreact too quickly in pro ball. There's a reason we had them here. And so like initially, I think I probably discounted too much the new information that you could get and what was valuable and, and, and just being willing to say, okay, we had them ranked here for this reason. Now they're, they're showing something different. I think another recent example, that's, that's maybe a good one to, to illustrate this concept is Spencer Jones. I mean, he was a back of the first round pick in 2022 by the Yankees, a bit of a polarizing profile. He didn't have a really lengthy track record of hitting at a high level in college. The 2022 season was his kind of massive platform year. 
Um, the big question with him was overall contact, swing and miss. Then he has a really strong debut and pro ball where, where the contact numbers and the strikeout rate looked pretty good. And I think that when you com- you combine that knowledge and, and that performance with the athlete that he is, the upside that he that he offers, um, you, you move him up in your own like kind of personal rankings where you think of players and, and adjust to it better. So I think pretty quickly would be the answer uh, to Jeff's initial question of like how quickly you readjust expectations. And I guess like in a in theory, we should be readjusting our expectations for players like like every week, being able to actually do that in a in a practical way that's not just constantly like moving guys up and down and just moving players for the sake of moving players like that's always going to be a balance you have to hit but i think your point of like taking in the new information that we're gathering on all these players throughout the year is super valuable we should constantly be be just updating our thinking of the players yeah and then you see so going back to the maybe the hitters like especially the high school hitters in the complex leagues i i can think of so many examples too where you you have a high draft pick goes out on the complex league and immediately people are like ooh this is <laughs> like they they took him where yeah <laughs> um and and usually for me the biggest concern is just a lot of swing and miss mm-hmm. at that level so if you have Keone Kavaka, you know, if, would that be one Yes, that would be, you know, <laughs> Twins first round pick from 2019 yeah. out of high school. Um, but at, at the same time, look, if, if you have a big high school prospect who goes out and maybe just the overall surface level slash line is not great, but he's not out there swinging and missing a ton, that's not as much of a concern for me. And mm-hmm. it gets a little tricky, especially at the end of the year, because some of the guys are just run down, right? Especially the well, the, the high school guys too, just because they're younger. But like the college guys have really been going at it since January. And if you're seeing them in August, they, they might just be gassed in some cases by yeah. the end of the year. Like I think that was the case with Alec Bohm after – the the Phillies drafted him because he, mm-hmm. um, I think he went out to yeah he went out to the New York Penn League after being a what was like a top five or six overall pick uh, I think it was the third overall pick in the draft and then went out to the Penn League and really struggled his first season but like I think he was just run down there so there's different contextual things like that that can make a difference but. Um, I, I think there is valuable information you can glean from that. I mean, I, I think back to another guy like Logan Ohapi too, who you know did, did not think he was going to be a oh yeah, this is a top one hundred prospect. Like that wasn't the thought when he mm-hmm. was in the Gulf Coast League. But I mean, this was a twenty third round pick by the Phillies out of a you know a Long Island high school. Was not like a super high bonus guy either. Yeah, too. And he played in the GCL, and it was like, no, like this guy, he hit really well, got really good reviews in the GCL, which again is tough, especially for a high school catcher, because uh, that's tough heat to catch in mm-hmm. um, in in those games, especially in August. But he was somebody where it was like, oh no, we clearly have a lot more information. I mean, I don't know how many plate appearances he had in in high school, but he got over 100 plate appearances 
in the GCL. Like that's gotta outweigh. I mean, maybe the, some of the raw tools you, you can gauge just watching him. Mm-hmm. But he also wasn't a super heavily scouted player coming out of high school. Now people are seeing him play, you know, pretty consistently over the course of a month or two in the GCL. We're getting probably more played appearances in the GCL than he had in high school uh, in terms of both the, the stats and being able to watch him mm-hmm. play against professional competition that he's obviously not facing in high school so i think there's a lot of information that you can use to be um you know nimble in appropriately adjusting the prior reports that you had on a player yeah logan hobby's actually been really good at the the major league level so far this year as well 16 games 283 339 547 137 ops plus four homers pretty good yeah, it's, uh, you know, the surgery is going to be, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, we're going to have to, I think, rank him uh, again in our yeah. top 100. It's always tough when those guys are just hanging around for those reasons. Yeah, but, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, him, like Garrett Mitchell, it's like, uh, like we want you to, <laughs> we like you, we just want you to uh, to graduate, please. Yeah, and really just be healthy for those guys. Yeah. Who is the – do we know who the, the record holder is for most prospect handbook appearances because they just wouldn't graduate? Because I know – I feel like Royce Lewis is, is kind of creeping up those rankings as well. Uh, yeah, I feel like I've looked this up so many times, whether it's maybe we like – should know, We should have a, a leaderboard published somewhere for this. Yeah, whether it's like Jorge Alfaro or Dylan Batances or maybe even like Yorman Rodriguez or, or somebody. Oh, I wonder um, who the current active leader is because I would I would have to guess Lewis at this point, but I'm sure there's someone I'm not thinking of that's been ranked more in a, in a handbook. Yeah, there's probably some like randomish international player who was a big deal at. 16 mm-hmm. who's still who's just hanging, hanging around, hanging around. <laughs> it's like a number 27 prospect in some, in some bad system yeah well i'll try and find the answer to that maybe matt eddie will will know off the top of his head I'll, I'll ask him and report back on the next podcast so kind of talking through this ben we also had a draft rankings not an up or it was an update meeting the other day we were just trying to figure out where we're moving players around you were involved in that um, a lot of the same things that we're talking about here go into those meetings as well. Um, but you were in that meeting. You're in our top 100 meetings. How do you how do you compare and contrast the difference in in how those meetings go um, when we're talking about the pro players versus the draft players? Is there any noticeable process difference for you there? Uh, what are your thoughts on that as someone who's involved in both? Um, and as for myself, like I'm sure there are things I could take away to improve that process on the draft side. Um, I mean, we we just have to obviously when we do a top 100 versus expanding to a top 500. There's so many more players <laughs> we're covering, and then it's a it's not the same playing fields for pro guys because you are comparing guys who are in you know we, like we have Ethan Salas in our top 100 for example, and then we have Triple A, Double A guys too. Mm-hmm. So there are different levels, but it's feels a lot different when you're evaluating high school players, college players, trying to stack them up and then going off of spring reports where, yeah, for the college players, it's we have all their stats and all their data 
pretty readily and, and video pretty readily accessible. Whereas the high school players, you really have to dig in more with scout calls and conversations to try to line people up to get that new and updated information. So you're, you know, so we have Jackson Holiday, for example, in in the right place or, or other guys who are either moving up or down the board that's a little bit easier to navigate i think with the pro guys than the than on the draft side yeah i think the point about the reporting being more important um, just because the access to information is so much harder on the high school guys like you don't have just leaderboards and data sets for the high school players like sometimes you'll have high school stats and maybe those have been entered accurately and even when they have been entered accurately i don't think they have nearly the weight that that stats for professional players have just because you have this baseline of competition this baseline of talent like the (laughs) you could maybe pull up two player stats at the high school level and you're going to get video game numbers for a lot of these high school players, but even comparing like upper Midwest competition in numbers from some of the better hitters in the country to someone who's playing in Southern California, where you're really facing a lot of pitchers who are going to go on and, and pitch in college at the next level. Uh, and the, the competition, like the baseline of competition is just so much higher. If or you're the, making deci- or the fields too, like some yeah. of them have literally no fence. Some of them it's like, <laughs> 315 to center field and it's like oh yeah this guy's can't believe how many home runs this guy's hit this year oh yeah, yeah his park is this little little field i've already heard from several players this spring who have pretty pretty silly home run totals and like certain certain uh <laughs> certain players in the industry will be trying to kind of hype those up and scouts like yeah those really don't mean anything this like this is like a little t-ball field they play at like everyone's hitting home runs um, so you just can't you can't really dig into the the high school stats at any meaningful level. I don't really think um, it's more about what the scouts are seeing, how the tools look, how the player looks. I mean, this is why the scouts are important, and and I hope that the draft list is driven entirely uh, from scout feedback. I think the biggest translation we have to make on our side versus the scout side is um, we're trying to line these players up based on talent, and I know for a lot of the high school players if you get to a certain range where they're not signable, like the scouts are not going to put them on their board where we're going to have them on our board because the signability is a factor for those teams. Like for instance, if you have a third round talent for a high school player, but you know, based on whatever that player's um, ask is for in terms of signing bonus, they're not going to sign in the third round. Well, you're not going to have them on the third round on your board for a team. But for us, we're just trying to line them up on talent that way. It's perfectly fine to have a high school player in the third round, even if we know he's more than likely going to go to college. Um, that's that's at least the the goal in theory to line them up. So that can be tricky, but I think the the best thing that we can do is do as much reporting and scout calls as possible for these updates and these lists. And hopefully it's not driven by my opinions on players, but the scouts. Yeah, and then at the same time, just trying to use our own collective judgment in trying to line up different players or so many different players from yeah different parts of the country college high school junior college guys too so that can be because you know we'll say oh this guy yeah this guy belongs in in the back of the first round well there's not going to like be 40 or 50 guys <laughs> who can go in in the first round so not mm-hmm. everybody can fit there you know the same thing about oh he fits in the 
you know, second to third round range, something like that. So there's going to be more players than Mm -hmm. uh, there are picks in in those rounds. Yeah. And and kind of trying to play that that cross checker role where you have good information from a lot of players in different areas of the country and trying to to line them up, whereas the area guys are kind of lining up their specific areas and maybe don't have the um, they haven't seen all these players around the country like trying to line them up from different demographics and different sources is always a challenge, but it's always a fun challenge to do. Um, and, and trying to balance it to where the area scouts are depending on, on the case, but typically are going to know and have more history on the player in their area than their, definitely you know, than their scouting director is going to have. Now their scouting director is somewhat in our role obviously it's not the same but where they're just trying to um, line up all the information you're getting yeah yeah kind of synthesize all of the information that they're getting where Mm -hmm. you know they've seen certain guys once a handful of times maybe even i mean zero times in some cases for picks as high as second round in in some instances even Um, i mean i think that's pretty unusual but it does happen so yeah, I mean, do you even just weighing different people's opinions with different years of experience or, or different levels of national perspective on the country this year versus, you know, the area scout who's might have a lot more history on on a player than his colleagues who, you know, operate at a, at a national mm-hmm. level do? Yeah, that that is always tricky trying to especially when you have split camp players or there are always it, it seems like there's there are years and in, in specific players where the area scouts for most teams will be kind of in agreement where they think of a player because they all have similar the similar history and they've been watching him for a few years and then you'll have cross checkers or national guys come in to see them during a spring and it's a it's a time when they get really hot and the higher level decision makers who just don't have the length of in-person history like this player better. I, I think Keone Kavaka was actually one of these examples. Like I remember talking to area scouts who were like really skeptical of what he was doing. Cause they'd seen him for a few years and just mm-hmm. were kind of surprised. Um, and he had really performed loudly in a few workout scenarios uh, and some higher level folks really were excited about the tools and I think the tools were, were legit at the time. I mean, big, big power, great athlete, um, big arm strength. And you have split camps between different, I don't know, like roles of scout scouting at times. And there are other instances where you'll have split feedback all up and down the spectrum of area scout up to scouting director and to cross checkers. So it's always very tricky to, to sort of balance that out because at the end of the day, the guys up top are making those decisions and the area scouts are the ones who are, who are trying to just give the best information they can to, to allow those decisions to be made. Um, Which I think is why it's, it's so important to have good area scouts. And why I've said before, I would hire even more area scouts than teams have now just to drill down even deeper yeah. on players, get more looks at more players, um, it's I, funny I talking to some of the teams that don't have a lot of area scouts and like talking to the people in the scouting department who are in charge of the department. Like you can sense the frustration with them. Like they would, it, I would be very surprised if there was any director who wanted fewer scouts. Like it seems like all of these guys want more. It's like the decisions are made above their head. Like how big this department is going to be. Cause if I'm the scouting director, I'm, I'm with you. You want as much information as you can possibly get. You want to feel like 
you have all your bases covered. You want to feel like you're you're getting a competitive advantage in terms of information and eyes on the ground. Like there's just so much real information that can be gathered. So I, I would like to see bigger and bigger scouting staffs across the board, but it's not always what happens. Yeah, I mean, there's you know there's going to be players who are you know we, we have ranked pretty high or sometimes just pop up guys where somebody in the organization you know you, you might have seen them a, a few times and you're trying to make decisions off of pretty small sample sizes of information now that's not going to be the case obviously with the you know the guys who we're looking at in the first round although again like Cavaco <laughs> is an example of yeah you know I don't know how much Xavier Isaac with the Rays from last year yeah. he wasn't on the circuit so it was mostly spring so yeah, every year there are a few of those guys that go pretty high without having a significant um, summer track record or or just history. Yeah, the uh, you know as we were so we're currently going through this draft rankings process update right now, so you guys can kind of get a little like insight into how we're making the list or just the process we go through. Because uh, I, I think for me, one of the most challenging players to place is, or figuring out what to do with him, is Chase Dolander, mm-hmm. the starter, right-handed starter with Tennessee. Yeah. Because coming into the season, I mean, he, he was in consideration for being the number one overall pick or certainly he, a top he, he definitely was and he was also like regarded as one of the better college pitching prospects we'd had in years so yeah and then you look at the season he's at i mean certainly paul Skeens has surpassed him at this point but because what he's doing is just absurd but dollander hasn't been like terrible but it hasn't been great either mm-hmm. where like on our current draft rankings we have him as a top 10 prospect but i i wonder when draft day comes are teams who are picking in the top 10 gonna be fired up to <laughs> take a guy who was better a year ago than he was today i mean what what do you make of where he's at Right yeah, now. he he's definitely been tricky to place, and and kind of the sense that I've gotten from the industry and in asking about him is everyone really wants Chase Dolander to be good, because yeah. everyone remembers <laughs> everyone remembers how good he was a year ago, and a lot of the people that I've talked to are giving him a lot of credit for that 2022 season, and I think because the pure stuff in terms of like velocity of both the fastball and the slider, those are pretty much in line with what he had a year ago. Um, I think there is a lot of thinking of like, okay, we can get him back to that 2022 version. So just to kind of like thumbnail overview of what he did last year in 14 starts and 79 innings, it was a 2.39 ERA, 108 strikeouts to 13 walks, 35% strikeout rate, 4.2% walk rate. This year, uh, the numbers are kind of up across the board in terms of production against him. ERA is 4.35, 13 starts. 68 innings, 94 strikeouts, 25 walks. It's a 32% strikeout rate, which isn't crazy off 35, but the walk rate has doubled. It's 8.5% so far this year. Um, he's allowed more home runs this year. Uh, I don't know if I have the exact home run number, but it's a, um, where's the home Yeah, 11 run home runs this year. Yeah, 11 home runs this year. What did he, you have what he had last year? Seven last year. 
Yeah, so he he very quickly had allowed a lot more home runs early in the season. That was something that I noticed, and I think offense is definitely up in college yeah, so, baseball. So I think that as we talk about how you maybe are more skeptical of like home run totals for hitters, the the inverse is true for pitchers. You give them a little more leeway to some of these. We're gonna have a lot of guys with like four plus ERAs that are going maybe higher than you'd expect in a in a normal year because offense is just up across the board. Um, but it's certainly true that Dolander's command is backed up. He has not spotted the fastball as consistently and as like expertly as he did a year ago. I think the slider shape has also backed up a little bit. It's not as sharp. Um, it's flattened out quite a bit at times, and he's kind of left it over the middle of the plate, and that's led to some of those home runs. Maybe in, in the offensive environment last year, he just got away with those misses because the, the bats or the ball or, or whatever it is seemingly wasn't as hot. Um, but I think that and maybe this will change over the next few weeks as we kind of solicit more feedback and the next step that that we have after we set our prelim list is we we send it around the industry and try to get thoughts see if we're too high on players see if we're too low on players and that kind of informs where players move but to this point i think that teams really just think that the 2022 version of dolander is in there and that there's not like an obvious reason that his numbers are this bad and the fact that he's still sitting 95 um, and still has a generally good strikeout to walk rate overall. Um, I think most most people that I've talked to are like cautiously optimistic about him still. I think that the the final few weeks of the season and postseason, how he performs, are going to be really important for him, though. How how are you thinking of Dolander? I so I, I probably would have him lower with the caveat that, like you said, hey, if if he f- flourishes the rest of the season then yeah i would bump him right back up the board i'm not surprised to hear what you were saying i'm sure there's no shortage of people looking at a player thinking oh well we can fix him yeah (laughs) um but i i do think if if we're talking and the other thing i think in his favor is that after paul Skeens, if you're looking for a college pitcher you do have rhett louder at Wake Forest, um, but I think Dolander's just raw stuff is, is probably better mm-hmm. than Louder's, right? Yeah. Um, I think you then... could say the case like like Red Louder is like this sinker slider changeup guy who, I mean, and, and again, I think Dolander's fastball shape is also backed up. But a year ago, he had kind of that ideal pitch shape for the fastball. It's a little more oomph to the velocity. The slider looked like the more classic like power slider you like. So, just yeah, in terms of if... how they look for upside, like top of the rotation, middle of the rotation, are better pitchers i think dolander fits that mold and rhett louder maybe fits that like that stereotypical safer back of the rotation type so it's just a matter of like risk tolerance and upside yeah and hurston waldrop at, at florida has really good stuff but if we're talking about results i mean chase dolander has been better than waldrop just as far as performance mm-hmm. this year and maybe you think there are things you can fix with waldrop but you know after that group of college pitchers like if you're looking for pitching in the top 15 picks especially on the college (laughs) side there's not not a lot you're gonna have available to you Mm -hmm. i think other than or or that you would feel good about taking there other than maybe those guys yeah so i think that works in his favor i just get concerned where and again i'm talking about a top 10 pick where we'd mm-hmm. be drafting a guy who is not as good this year 
as he was last year when you have so many other players who seem to be trending especially in that group of players who are trending the the other way right where they seem to be developing the right way they are getting better and it's not you know a you know a death sentence by any means for Dolan or he seems like somebody who could um, like he's not a reclamation project that's too strong but there are you know there are things you could look at him where he needs to just fix and correct to get back to I'm very curious to see so the industry is going to be pouring over like video and data and looking to see like like what exactly has gone wrong i haven't gotten like a very clear answer i've gotten a few guesses from people about like and we even wrote about this earlier in the season about dolander's mechanics being very slightly off from what they were a year ago like not properly stacking over over the mound in his leg lift like having a little bit of drift towards the third base side like maybe it's as simple as like those little tweaks have gotten him out of sync and so that's impacted uh, his release point or, or his position on the ball when he's releasing and so that's impacted the shape and the command so like maybe it is something as simple as that but i'm curious if over the next few months as as he keeps pitching and as presumably people are, are pouring over the data in the video if we get like any clear this is why dolander everything was backed up just a little bit like if there's some obvious answer to point to i, I would feel maybe more confident but if it's generally just like oh like we think we can fix him we we, we can't ID exactly what was wrong with him this year. It was just a little off. That'd be a little more concerning because I, I, I would want to know the why. Well, it does seem like they're especially and understandably so early in the season thought that, oh, well, it's maybe just a, a slow start. He'll turn things around by the end of the season. And even in early in the season, there were some some questions about like pitch tipping um, that was happening with, with Tennessee. So, I mean, it, if, if you're pitch tipping the entire year, that that's more of a, a question of what are you doing as a team, but you can't, you certainly can't use that to explain away the whole season. Yeah. It just, to me, it seems like there are, he, he does have a lot of upside. Obviously still, I would just feel more confident in the guys who seem to be trending up, uh, especially given the talent yeah. available in, in the top 10 picks. So we had a staff draft version 2.0 of our staff draft that went on the website today, uh, Thursday, as we record this episode. Um, and Chase Dolander fell to me with the 13th pick, which, which I was more than happy to take him there. But I, I mean, I think the fact that, that everyone else in the staff draft let him fall there kind of points to some of the concerns that we have um, with Dolander in general. Yeah. Like I was picking eight overall, and I think I was debating Dolls and, and Chase Dolander. And I don't even really love gonzalez a swing personally and, and just took him because he was a college hater at a premium position so yeah how do you think teams or how would you balance somebody like the, those college arms in dolander or hurston waldrop where and particularly in waldrop's case the the stuff has been excellent the results have not been versus louder where the the results have been there to go with pretty good if maybe not quite as electric stuff uh, and then compare to also somebody like noble meyer where it seems like electric stuff and throwing a lot of strikes a lot of upside him thomas white from the left side too but at the same time they're still high school arms i mean are they all comparable talent levels as far as where they're going to go or or is somebody not belong in 
that group? No, I, th- I think they are all kind of close together in terms of talent. Um, I think Noble Meyer, Thomas White, Hurston Waldrop certainly have better, a little bit better pure arm talent and, and upside compared to Rhett Louder. But I think Louder of that group is also the most polished. So I think where I would make my decisions with them would probably depend on like the confidence that I had in my pitching development if I was on the team side. like If I had a really mm. good pitching development group, I think I'd be much more willing to take a guy like... Uh, Rhett La- or excuse me, like Hurston Waldrop, who has just elite stuff and and really just has never thrown strikes at a great rate and has been inconsistent. Like thinking about Hurston Waldrop with what the Rays have done with pitchers, Waldrop, I, I keep coming back to this one just because I saw it in, in a piece that I wrote a few weeks ago. I don't even remember what it was, but Shane McClanahan falling down the board because presumably the Rays had a little extra money to give to him and because of the, the reliever question marks. I mean, they've done an excellent job with him. So if you think about a guy like Hurston Waldrip in the Rays system, they've done really good. Uh, they've done a great job getting pitchers to throw more strikes. And that's really the the biggest question with Waldrip. His, his pure stuff stacks up with everyone in this class. The split change is fantastic. He's got two breaking balls that could be plus. The fastball is, is plus. It's a good athlete. It's great arm speed. Um, but if if you have concerns that maybe you don't have a great pitching development group, you don't have the track record of of kind of unlocking these players, maybe a guy like Rhett Lauder is, is more appealing because I think he is more of a finished product. He's a he's a pitcher who gets the most out of his stuff right now. He mixes and matches really well. The command is probably the most advanced of these four players, certainly more advanced than Waldrop and in Thomas White. I think you can maybe make a case that, that Noble Meyer is so advanced in that area for his age if, if you wanted to give him um the the points there I, I don't think that's crazy you just have a little bit more ri- risk from like a profile and a timeline perspective but yeah if, if you need pitching in your system or if you're competitive now and you just don't want to have to do a lot in terms of like getting the most out of a player Rhett Louder is pretty ready made um so there's a lot of like safety relative to just pitching prospects overall um, none of them are really safe, but I think Louder would be towards the safer end of the spectrum for a pitching prospect for me. So I think a lot of it would depend on on my player development group and the confidence or, or the lack of confidence I had there. How about you? Could you say that in the draft room, you think? Like, oh, like our pitching development sucks. We can't well, this guy. <laughs> I, I don't know that you could say that, but I, I have talked with some scouts who like they have conversations about like as an organization about what they think they do well. Uh, like player development wise whether that's like getting the most out of a certain pitch or some teams maybe think they can develop breaking balls or maybe you think you're Mm -hmm. a good organization at like uh, getting players to throw more strikes or whether like squeezing some more velocity yeah Yeah. like i think there are specific things that teams are aware that they 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 have confidence that they can impact a player on and then there are some areas that they maybe are more willing to admit that like they don't think they have a consistent path to improvement in a certain area so like even if it's not just pitching development overall like i'm sure no organization is like oh our pitching development just sucks like everyone thinks they're they're putting in putting a group in place who's going to do something well with these players or else well the i think probably the gm or the development side does yeah there's definitely a there's definitely a conflict some in for sure it comes up a lot with scouts scouting and player development absolutely scouts are like hey player this guy was good player development screwed him up and (laughs) for sure for sure saying like oh they didn't give us a good player (laughs) yeah the guys you're giving us are 
<laughs> this is also why I think the teams that do it well are really good at communicating between departments because if mm. you if you think that if your player development staff is very like self-aware of what they do well, what they can't do well, presumably you should be able to pair that up with traits for players in the draft to let them maximize what they can do well consistently, right? Like you want to play to your strengths and you don't want to have some poor fit in terms of, of traits or skills or tools on the player side to basically give your player development folks nothing to work with. If, if you think that a player needs a lot of polish, like I, like just being able to have that self-awareness and the communication between departments seems like just a massive competitive advantage. Yeah. And I think even, I know there are even organizations that, you know, we think of as very good at player development that still just say like, Hey, like, you know, we kind of struggle with that communication sometimes making sure we're all, on the same page like it's something we're trying to get better at yeah and i think it's really tough like it's easy to say oh just communicate well but it's it's big organizations there's a lot of moving parts there are people in all different areas focus on different things it's like very hard to Mm -hmm. i mean even here at baseball america we're not like a huge operation but it it can be hard to just get everyone on the same page for things because we're constantly worrying about different areas that, that we're focused on we're on different schedules like communicating effectively is it's not some just like softball that you can just say, Oh, we're going to do this and then execute it. Like the idea is great. And then the idea is easy. The execution is very hard. Yeah. I, I do think in mentioning louder, he's, he's somebody I think will go pretty high mm-hmm. because of both the polish. And then I feel like his stuff just gets undersold to a certain extent. Like yeah. he's not out there throwing, you know, 8992 like <laughs> he you know he can run it up to 97 miles an hour he's got a great changeup he can you know he can spin a breaking ball and then he throws a lot of strikes good feel for pitching like i'm not saying he's a future number one starter but mm-hmm. yeah i think has good stuff and can move pretty quickly with with some polish whereas somebody like waldrip and you know maybe the light bulb just turns on for him and he flies through the system but yeah um it's just there's more adjustments that he's going to have to make whereas with that's why we're like you know maybe waldrip versus i think noble meyer in particular from the high school side who i I think is to me the, the clear best high school pitching prospect this year Meyer, Meyer versus Waldrop. Like I would take Meyer because I think the stuff is, the stuff might just be as good, maybe not as deep, deeply as good, but you know, fastball up to ninety-nine, uh, wipeout slider, just one of the best sliders in the draft period. Mm-hmm. Throws a lot of strikes. Um, you know, with with any high school pitcher, you know, to be determined on durability we're just not seeing them throw on a pro schedule with pro rest pro workload all that um but just given the you know just given the results that we've seen from waldrop i I would rather have meyer over him and and i think it's even probably debatable noble meyer versus chase dolander yeah no that that's not shocking to me i think the the point you made early on there about louder's stuff maybe being underrated at this point is a good one um i've talked to scouts who think he's got three above average pitches and in an era where like you can find plus pitches all over the place maybe that doesn't sound as sexy as as a guy like hurston waldrip and i think also there's this 
I think now if a fastball is not like this huge carry vertical break fastball a lot of people like just disregard it like people really Mm -hmm. seem to not like a running fastball but i think rhett louder's fastball pairs perfectly with his pitch mix because he can attack in both directions with the slider the fastball mimics the changeup shape really well his usage of all these pitches are basically means you're guessing every single time one of three pitches he can throw in the zone for strikes and i think that just the way the ball comes out of his hand. I, I don't know specifically if he tunnels all of these like really well, but I'm assuming that he does. And when you see hitters react to him, it looks like he does. And additionally, he's pitching in a really homer-friendly park. Uh, I'm pulling up his numbers now, but he, he does a great job keeping the ball on the ground just because of that sinker slider change-up profile. And that's really helped him in the park that he's playing at in a college environment where home runs are just crazy. I think at the next level too, even if he's maybe not missing bats at an elite rate, I I would think that he's going to drive weak contact. Yeah, it's a 6.7% home run to fly ball rate. It's a 55% ground ball rate overall, which is fantastic. And and at Wake Forest. Yeah, it's fantastic when you're playing at Wake Forest when keeping the ball on the ground is just a massive advantage because if if you let up balls in the air, like they're a lot easier to fly out of that park. Um, And he... He, he just does everything really well i mean you could pick some things apart if you if you don't like that fastball shape maybe you make the case that like none of this stuff will play as good at the next level but i think his polish and feel for three pitches will be enough to keep hitters off balance you mentioned it he's not throwing like a soft fastball he's sitting 93 94 he's touched 97 like so he gets into the upper 90s um maybe the one biggest question with him is he's just a, like a very open toe land pitcher and i know some some pitching people really hate that um so if you wanted to like critique him mechanically it's a it's kind of a funky landing um but it's really worked for him so i think i think everything he does um he really is like optimized i know jeff has said this a lot rhett louder is like a very optimized pitcher and if you're if you just want massive projection maybe you could view that negatively but I, i think i tend to view it positively I think what you said before was interesting about just the shape of fastballs. And I think it's a, it's a trap to fall into where people get carried away. Well, so to speak, um, <laughs> elite, elite following right there, the, you know, what's the kind of the flavor of the month and mm-hmm. in baseball. And that's something that's going to, you know, something else will come along and we'll say that what we were thinking right now when we look back in three to five years oh how could we how could we think that and don't get me wrong like i love you know a pitcher who's able to throw a fastball that rides up in the zone and gets swing and miss when a pitcher can elevate it mm-hmm. uh, you know even even more so maybe than the the raw velocity might suggest but there's not just one type of fastball yeah that hitters are able or excuse me that pitchers are able to be successful with and things that we might view negatively today on, you know, if we're just looking at the track man output might not necessarily be um, quite what you thought when, (laughs) uh, you know, when you look back Mm -hmm. years from now, I think there are certain things that have stood the test of time that are important to, to look at. 
um, and and things that we thought, you know, just from a, a data driven perspective were awesome years ago that we look at now like, oh, why would we, you know, why were we teaching these guys to throw sinkers? Or why were we trying to focus on, you know, two seam fastballs, right? That were mm -hmm. all the rage and, and pitching down years ago. And now we look back and think, oh, well, why did we do that for so many guys when um, it's good for some pitchers, but not for everybody? Yeah. And it's it's kind of the same, I think, today, just through, you know, through a different lens of, of what mm -hmm. people are targeting today. Yeah, and I think as as those heavy carry fastballs get selected for more and more and more, and as players try to optimize their fastball for that that riding life, the advantage that that specific pitch shape gives you is only going to decrease as hitters just like train themselves visually to to account for that. And and so players who have a different pitch shape, you maybe will start to see more of a competitive advantage. Like like a lot of things in baseball, I think a lot of it is just cyclical. Um, the metas get exposed once once they become the meta for a long time. Hitters adjust, pitchers adjust. It's kind of constantly adjusting. And I think your your point that you made there at the end is is the right one. Like certain things work for certain players. That doesn't necessarily mean that we need to paper over some specific strategy or trait or or skill and try to have everyone do it the same way because everyone's just a little bit different. Who who do you like the most? Like if you had to take a pitcher and Paul Skeens is gone, like you're your boss is saying, hey, we need pitching this mm -hmm. year. I don't care if it's high school or college. We're terrible this year anyway. <laughs> um, I don't know. Who would be who would be your top guy? It'd be it'd be between Dolander and Meyer. And, uh, like, I'm more excited about the potential with Meyer, and I'm also probably towards the higher end of, like, believers in the 2022 Chase Dolander being unlocked. Because if, like, if you can get back to that, I would take Dolander with no guarantee that you can get back to that. Like, what Noble Meyer's doing right now is really impressive. I think you mentioned the fastball slider. It's two pretty freakish pitches. I think the athlete is great. I like the size. He's got a lot of physical projection left. The touch and feel is pretty advanced right now. So today, I think I'd probably just take Meyer up. I mean, I tend to be pretty um, pretty fine with the high school ready demographic because I'm not actually the one <laughs> making these picks, and, and I don't have to live with the ramifications of missing. But, I mean, there are a ton of really good high school right-handed pitchers who, who are – at the top of the pitching prospects in baseball. So I think like given, given the state of the class and, and given how it falls off after Skeens, I'm, I'm fine taking the risk for, for a lot of the upside that I see with Noble Meyer. I think, I mean, a lot of the things that I want a pitcher to do, he, he does really well. I would like to see a little bit more about like what the changeup looks like. Uh, I think that's maybe the biggest criticism you can give Noble Meyer is like, like Andrew Painter had a deeper pitch, pitch mix at this age. Um, but I also think Noble Meyer's slider is, is a great, a full grade or better than what Andrew Painter was throwing at the same time. So I would go with him. How about you? Yeah, I would take either Louder or Meyer and mm -hmm. all the all the risks that come with pitching prospects. Or excuse me, with especially with high school pitchers. It's still there, but he just he does about everything you could ask for in a high school pitcher. Um great fastball you know flashing a 70 slider throws a lot of strikes good delivery um it's yeah it's it's even bigger stuff than than louder uh obviously louder is more polished is going to get there well i shouldn't say obviously because noble meyer is pretty polished too yeah. like he's you know, obviously painter got hurt so 
that's going to delay his timetable, but otherwise he was moving pretty quick. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. um, I would take one of those two guys with the caveat that like, Hey, come, come July. If Dolander is starting to look like the guy he was last year, well, maybe, maybe <laughs> go back to him. Yeah. The thing that, that I always come back to with Dolander that just makes me just really wish for, for that version to come back is like the delivery is so beautiful and the arm worked so well and when he was locked locked in on his fastball command it was like he was putting the ball in a cup behind the plate it's like wherever he wanted it was pinpoint he was hitting his spot so consistently and the slider was sharp i mean it was just awesome when it was when it was all together um but again haven't really seen that version of him this year in extended periods of time so yeah i think i think maybe meyer for now and then like you said i'm willing to willing to go dolander again all right um how about um one thing that's interesting ben too is and you've been making a lot of rounds here recently seeing games in person when we're like getting towards this stage in the in the process for the draft how how important do you think it is to not only scout the players but also like scout the scouts at the field because um, for me, obviously, that's that's very important for mock drafts, trying to see who who's bearing down on what player. That information is super valuable. Um, how much do you take away from that, and how much of it is just like well, a lot of these teams are evaluating the same players, so you can't read too much into it. Yeah, it always depends, but particularly, like you said, this time of year, you know, if you see a scouting director and or a whole bunch of directors who are in there who pick very high in the draft seeing a high school player um you're like okay <laughs> and and then you're not seeing the the you know the higher ups from the guys picking in later rounds then all right now we have a pretty good idea of like at least <laughs> where there's some expectation of where this player could go and and certainly if you're a club making a decision on a player what you know whether it's your first round pick or it's area scouts being at a, a game particularly for the high school game because with college there's more video stuff available where you don't necessarily need to be there uh, in person quite as much but you're trying to scope out like okay who's my competition if i'm trying to get this guy in the you know the seventh round or you know, the 14th round is a, you know, a lower, you know, lower bonus kind of sign a signable type player for a, a player who's maybe not quite as high profile. Um, but at the same time, sometimes it's just, Hey, this scout, you know, or this higher ranking, uh, you know, scout or, you know, assistant GM or whoever it is just is making his, you know, making a trip through a certain area and is really going, you know, to see, uh, you know, a certain priority player uh, one day. And then, hey, you know, there's another guy who is pitching the next day. All right, I'll go over and see him while I'm in the area. So yeah. you don't want to just, like, make assumptions from that. But you can get a pretty good feeling both from which specific people are there and also sometimes just the volume of scouts yeah. that are there like i went to see josh noth who's a right-handed pitcher uh at a you know high school in long island right now and there were probably like 35 40 scouts 
there. I mean, probably even more scouts than when I go see Thomas White, but probably that's just because at this point, a lot of teams picking <laughs> at the back of the first round are saying, well, why am I going to spend my time watching yeah. a player who I'm never going to absolutely get? But it does give an indication of like, hey, yeah, there's there's a lot of teams who have pretty heavy interest in, you know, this player in Noth who's moving up our our rankings and is not going to go, you know, I shouldn't say won't, but, uh, you know, probably is not going to go in the top, you know, 15 picks, but beyond that, like, Hey, yeah. there's a whole bunch of teams picking up. Hey, we had, the first uh, round we had Frankie Mazzucato a few years ago. I don't, I don't know that we expected him to go top 10. So never say never, but yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it could happen. I mean, it, yeah. Even teams like that are looking at players like that, or maybe we'll take them in the, the comp round or teams in the second round. So, uh, you can definitely get a, a sense from sometimes just the volume in addition to the, the specific people who are in attendance. Yeah, it's kind of funny to think about the players who are at the very top of the draft just getting less of a crowd than players who have a chance to go in that like, like supplemental or early second range because the, the first group of players, there's only a limited amount of teams who are more than likely going to be able to sign them. And then the second group is fair game for really everyone in the industry. So. Yeah, I don't think the Yankees and Astros are spending a whole lot of time on Max Clark right now. <laughs> yeah, that would be uh, that'd be a bit surprising if that were the case. So, um, anything else you want to get into, Ben? Before we do a couple listener questions, uh, what do you got on uh, AJ Smith Shaver right now? Oh yeah, I'm glad you brought him up because he's just been on a little bit of a rocket ship just in terms of flying through the system for the Braves. I mean. I don't think he was our number one prospect in the organization for the handbook because Cal Muller was still in the system and he was one just because of proximity. Um, but AJ Smith Shaver was a pretty, pretty solid number two for us. And he's currently the top prospect in the system. He was the seventh round pick in 2021. Um, gave him a decent bonus there over slot for, for the seventh round. And I remember just being pretty blown away with kind of the way scouts are talking about his arm talent and the pure stuff that he had. It was like potential sevens on the fastball and the slider is more of a case of him just needing to add a little bit of polish, improve the control and command a little bit, uh, refine the delivery a little bit. There was some effort. There's some moving parts. There's a little bit of violence in the delivery, um, but he misses a ton of bats. He always has 2022. He struck out 13.5 per nine, walked 5.1 per nine. Early on this year, uh, the strikes are up. I think the for the first month of the season, at least, the fastball strike percentage was around 70%, which I was really excited to see. It sounds like the fastball and slider are still great. The Braves have reintroduced a curveball early on this spring, which Smith Schauber had thrown a curveball in his high school career. And then I think the Braves had him kind of scrap that pitch, work on the slider, um, which they've done with a lot of players, just kind of quieting down arsenals or, or restricting pitches and, and having players really focus on their best pitches and optimizing um, what they can do with those pitches. I mean, this is obviously what they did with Spencer Strider, and he's maybe the best two-pitch pitcher in baseball right now. Um, I think they, they followed a similar path with Smith Schauber just to have him focus on his fastball, focus on his slider. Now they're reintroducing a third pitch, so the curveball looks pretty good. He's also thrown a changeup in the past. I don't think he's really focused on it too much, but he started at high A, 14 innings there, three starts, moved to double A, um, two starts there, seven innings. Um, again, still striking out batters, still walking walking batters at a, a career low rate for, for his brief pro career. And now he's going to be in triple A, which 
I was honestly pretty surprised about because he's just 20 years old. Um, but I do wonder here if there's any element to like the Southern League having a weird ball in Double A. Don't mess with that. Or if like if Smith Shaver's going to be a guy we see at the big leagues here soon because he would not have been a guy who I expect to see in the big leagues entering the year. Um, but he's going to be starting in Triple A Friday. So like as you guys are probably listening to this podcast, he's going to be making his Triple A debut. Yeah, I mean, he's good in Rome in high A to start the year. And, I mean, like you said, number one prospect by the time the season started for a guy who had a 5'11 ERA last year and was, you know, not great with his control to see him, you know, go from low A last year to now being in triple A a month into the season. <laughs> like it's, it's insane. Uh, yeah, good call by, by you, though, where you with where you had him. Well, good call by the scouts. That's more of what it was. But I, I wonder, like, if he's a guy who, if he keeps pitching well, like, how quickly he'll get into top 100. Because the Braves really had no candidates for the top 100 after the, the Cal Muller trade. Like, there was no one really on the radar for the top 100. I think I think I had Smith Shaver in my top 150, but he wasn't, like, particularly close to the back end for me. Now I, I would have to look around and see who's kind of on the cusp of the 100, but I feel like he's got to be – getting into that range because the big question with him was just like what's going to be the consistency of the control everyone in Braves camp has been really confident that he can start it was a little more mixed with like external scouts I had talked to about like starter versus reliever but so far it's really positive feedback um, and really positive performance to to make you feel confident about him starting and I think even even when Cal Muller was in the system Smith Shaver always had like the most loud pure stuff and probably the highest like upside for like a 90th percentile outcome. And if, if the, if the delivery is more refined, if the strikes are just more consistent, it's a pretty scary uh, proposition facing AJ Smith Oliver. Cause his fastball is a beast of a pitch. His slider is a beast of a pitch. And it sounds like, it sounds like curveball is not bad either. So there's a lot to like there and it's Braves pitching development and they consistently shove these guys through their system quickly. Um, and it's worked, so maybe he's the next in line. Yeah, I feel like he is kind of on that bubble of the top 100 conversation. Mm-hmm. Like we have, you know, we, we we certainly have guys in there right now who are, you know, especially some guys who are just banged up and injured right now. Who I would take him over, which maybe you know speaks more to the injury risk on on some of these other players. But if he if he keeps pitching like this in AAA, it's going to be hard, I think, to keep him out of there. Yeah, I think he's pitching against Memphis tomorrow, so it'll be him against Jordan Walker. There'll be a, a fun few at-bats to see. Nice. All right. Um, let's get into a couple questions. We had uh, one from Mets on Twitter who asked, how common is it for international free agent players to walk away from pre-agreed-upon deals? How common is it for players to walk away? Um, it's usually, I would say, more likely to be the other way around where it's the team that's changing its minds and going in a different direction. Uh, but it does happen where a player will have a, an agreement in place with a team and then all of a sudden, you know, somebody else from another club comes in, they're offering more money uh, or, you know, the player is getting significantly better and is going back to the team and saying, hey, I, 
you know, what 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 can you do here? Can you, you know, increase the the money here? And sometimes, yeah, sometimes the team just says, you know, look, we don't we don't want to lose this player. Uh, the player ends up getting more money that way. Uh, sometimes the player just ends up signing with a different team and, and backing out of his deal. And the team says, look, no, we have, you know, an agreement in place for, you know, with $500,000. Like if, if you get better, like that's still the deal. And if mm-hmm. you don't develop the way that we had expected or projected from you, like, you know, that's still the deal uh for you either way like that's just what we had agreed upon right Mm -hmm. uh but there you know there are definitely cases where the team has i think it's usually more often the team doing that where the team you know looks at the player and the player isn't developing the way that they had expected and they come up with some reason why they're not going to sign a player or, you know, in some cases, like there's a, an issue with the physical. So that pops up or the team ends up just having less money in its bonus pool than it had anticipated because they sign, you know, free agents who had, you know, you know, qualifying offer free agents. So they lose money in their bonus pool. And all of a sudden they're like, Oh, we, you know, we just don't have enough money to be able to, sign these players so that can change things too so it it does happen where players will back out um it's not like like super prevalent and i think more often it's the team um doing that because i I just think there's more power in the hands of the teams yeah situations than there are with the players it seems like it's a lot easier for a team to back out of a deal and still get another player whereas it would be a lot harder for a player to back out and still like be confident that that another team hadn't used up all their pool space right yeah and so you know sometimes there are teams that are you know doing things where they're you know committing more players than they know they can sign and then they you know make decisions that way like in college recruiting when you're like oh this team has a you know 23 players in their recruiting class <laughs> like how is that going to work when all of these players think they're actually going to get to campus yeah. after high school like that's then you know the, the colleges pull their offers or they say like hey we just don't have any spot for you we think it's best if you you know, get playing time at a another school, and then you know the kid is out of luck because the you know the team has been the college has been recruiting this massive class of players from the time they were in you know eighth grade and making them these promises that they can't keep. Yep. All right, uh, St. Louis Perfect is on Twitter. Uh, a fantasy question, a rare fantasy question for the podcast says he's in a fourteen-team dynasty league and won't finish higher than around ninth this year. But hopefully, I'm just two, one or two years away from contention. Dylan Cruz won't happen, but should I tank for Paul Skeens or Wyatt Langford? What's the best strategy for tanking while guys develop? Well, I'll be the first to say that I'm not a fantasy expert. I am in a dynasty fantasy league with the BA crew and some BA listeners, so I'm like hopefully learning more about the space. But I also threw this question to our fantasy experts. But Ben, I'll, I'll just throw it to you if you have anything to add in fantasy. I don't know. Um, 
what your confidence is in, in fantasy in particular. But uh, I did ask Matt Eddy and Dylan White and, and Jeff Ponce, who are much more uh, the fantasy experts at Baseball America, at least. Um, but do you have any thoughts on this just before I get to their answers? I would say, in just with regards to the specific players, like I don't think there's some huge, if any, necessarily drop off from you know those college players you just <clears throat> mentioned to Walker Jenkins and Max Clark out of high school. So yeah. you know, with I, I'd also to say, to I think this is going to happen, but I think Dylan Cruz's fame is going to make the perceived gap between Dylan Cruz and and um, Wyatt Langford bigger than it is in reality in terms of like talent production and tools. I think Langford is very close to the player that Dylan Cruz is. He's just not as famous. So so don't think that like Wyatt Langford is some massively inferior prospect to Dylan Cruz. Like he's he's very good in his own right. And I think I mean Walker Jenkins is one of the best pure hitters in the country from the prep class and has a chance to be a 30 plus home run guy. Max Clark is a center fielder who I think can make a ton of contact is, you know, if, you know, if you're looking at batting average, I think that's going to be high for him stolen bases. I mean, he's a plus plus runner mm-hmm. who's aggressive, really good instincts. Um, and I, and I think there's going to be more power in there. The eventually yeah. unlocks, but he's going to do a lot of things that I think from a, Again, depending on the scoring of your league, are going to be very valuable, both both in real life and from a fantasy perspective too. Yeah, we got two different opinions from from kind of the the Matt Eddie Dylan White Jeff Ponce brain trust uh, on tanking in general. I think Matt is more of a fan of like not tanking ever, just because baseball prospects are so unpredictable and like he doesn't want to go all in on prospects and just wind up with a bunch of busts. So he, he tends to try and compete every year regardless. Cause you, you never really know what happens. I know Matt likes to um, kind of trade, trade his prospects when they, they get a lot of buzz for established big leaguers. So that's a route you could potentially take if you want a quick turnaround and, and you're in a league that really values and prioritizes prospects. Maybe the competitive advantage there is to just sell high on those guys. Since I mean, the hit rate in general for prospects is, is quite low. Um, so that's one strategy. Uh, both Jeff and Dylan just talked about maximizing your draft pick if you are tanking, if it's if it's acceptable in your league to tank. Um, I wouldn't like just bench your good players. You probably need to trade them away. But but if you are not competing, try and try and identify the players on your team who maybe are at their peak value, whether that's like veterans who are are going to be valuable for competitive teams now, and and trade them for I would say upper level prospects or very young established big leaguers just to minimize your risk. Um, but that's kind of the general strategies and advice that that they were giving um, on the fantasy side, which, again, I'm, I'm not an expert in. But just in terms of the players, I think for this year's draft, like if you can get inside that top five tier, that seems like where the, the actual tier break is this year. If you can get any of Cruz or Paul Skeens, Langford, Walker Jenkins, Max Clark, like Ben was saying, I think all of those guys are, are pretty exciting players to have. And I think all of them would would be pretty good in fantasy, like we're talking about power average speed for um for max clark and then schemes would be a monster in whatever format that he's in you think lankford will be a a big stolen base guy yeah i don't know he hasn't really been active on the bases i think there's a chance that he could run more in pro ball just because the environment that the pro ball is in right now he has turned in 70 grade run times which is better than cruz better than jenkins um i don't think he's consistently a 70 grade runner like max clark is and I don't anticipate that he'll be a 70-grade runner. 
at the next level, I could see him sinking back to more like a plus runner consistently. Uh, I, I'd be curious to see how much he runs because just there's not a lot of both Langford and Cruz and Jenkins. I wouldn't anticipate being massive stolen base guys in fantasy baseball. If if that's like an area that either you're weak at, at in your team or you you think is very valuable, then I would think Max Clark would be the guy. Yeah, I don't think Jenkins is going to be a big stolen base guy either but it is massive power and i think he will he will get to it quite often yeah all right those are the questions we had today um any other any other topics or any other things to mention here ben before we wrap up and get out of here Uh, i mean we have all the international reviews on the site right now so good uh 250 plus scattering reports on international signings from this year um the good way to know the lower level international players before they blow up and before the Dominican summer league season gets started here in, uh, in a few weeks. Yeah. And then I would just plug the staff draft again, cause that's uh relevant to a lot of the things we talked about today. You can go see if you like, you like Ben's hall of players, or if you like my hall of players more, or maybe it's, maybe it's Peter's or maybe it's Jeff's or maybe it's JJ's. But, um, if you like mine more, definitely let us know on Twitter. If you like Ben's no, please don't say anything to us. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for, for listening to the podcast, for following along, for supporting baseball America and subscribing. Um, you guys really allow us to do everything we do here at BA and we definitely appreciate that. Again, our email is futureprojection at baseballamerica.com if you have got any questions, any comments, any feedback for the show. Um, But that's about it for today. Uh, For Ben, I'm Carlos. Thanks, everybody. So long.